0: Hi, and welcome to Papaholics, the show where a dad and daughter dish on pop culture over a drink. Uh, that's what we normally do. Uh, I'm Steve Hall. Uh, tonight, we have a very special guest, uh, Robert, who is a filmmaker and uh, just an interesting guy of the world, I shall say. And um, we're going to be talking about some of his uh, creative endeavors and also about pop culture because he's experienced uh, more pop culture than we have just here in the United States. Um So, uh, hello, Robert. How are you?
1: Hello. Very well. Thank
0: you. Uh, Good.
1: It's an honor to be on the show. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) So, where is the daughter?
0: She is off doing the things that uh, working moms do, apparently. So, it's okay.
1: (laughs) So, she she was too busy and couldn't be bothered. Fair enough. Yeah, I would do the same thing.
0: So, so let's explain, first of all, why we're calling you, air quotes, Robert. Do want to talk about that? Uh,
1: I don't think I do want to talk about it, but briefly, I just, in the bramble bush world of the internet, I want to have some level of anonymity. And uh, I think the reasons are somehow quite clear why that might be my impulse. Somebody sent me... I guess, in 2007, a Facebook request. I'd never heard of Facebook. I was sitting in my studio flat thinking I was enjoying my life as a cool bachelor in this kind of cool studio art flat in Germany. Later, I discovered I was deeply depressed when I finally got married and had babies and so on. <laughs> but at the time, I thought I was really living the life. Right? And somebody from California said, hey, there's something called Facebook. Do you want to join? And then I kind of, Mm, well, what's that? And I found out some details. And I thought, mm, all right, but this sounds extremely dodgy potentially. So I immediately didn't give it my real name in Facebook. So I have this kind of strange code name in Facebook. And with that, and it's just a greyed-out picture. It's just the the default picture. So I've had this impulse from the beginning, and so I just continue to do this. And that is, but not in any crazy kind of conspiracy theory way, just, right. just my intuition and my heart. I'm just following my heart. So Robert is, is a good way, to I think, to, to be named in this.
0: Well, that makes perfect sense. And I got to ask you, Robert, uh, since you were just talking about your bachelor days, was it easy to meet girls with this cool accent?
1: <laughs> well, I wish my accent was cool. My accent is very strange. You know, it's... I wish it was even mid-Atlantic, but it's neither this, nor that, nor that. So I grew up in England mostly, spent a lot of time in the Middle East and Egypt, where they have a quite specific kind of English-Arab accent. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then I've lived in Germany for many years, so there's a kind of slightly harsh kind of edge to some of my commands, when I command some. And then my parents are from the States, so I was brought up with these American people. My father's a New Yorker, so he has a kind of New York accent. So I have a very strange accent. And honestly, I want to do something about it. I was thinking of going to like finishing school because I just want one accent. I just like want one accent rather than this strange melange of an accent.
0: <laughs> so you uh, let's just talk briefly about your background. Then we're going to, I think, talk about the uh, because I want to talk a little bit about some of the pop culture you've experienced. Um so you grew up in England, in Cambridge, is that right?
1: Mostly in Cambridge, Cambridgeshire, and the surrounding counties. So Hertfordshire, Essex, and Cambridgeshire, yes. The whole okay. county.
0: And so, you know, in the States, we had this picture of, when we think of British pop culture, I mean, there's like two extremes. We think of like the Beatles, okay? Uh, and then we think of like uh, masterpiece theater, you know? Uh, what, what was like daily, daily pop culture like there when you were growing up?
1: Well, you have English humor, which permeates the whole of society and is appreciated. So in England and many other places, I'm sure, but in England, I know that people, when you talk to them, they make an effort to speak well and to kind of use the right word and to try and find you know use this beautiful piano all the keys of the english language and to to say something make an effort to speak well and choose even if it's a peculiar or not often used word to use that and then also there's a there's a dimension of why not also be funny and interesting witty and that's something that's lauded and commendable in english society being witty and kind of clever Mm -hmm. And often that's connected with also being self-deprecating. Right. Uh, So that's very much a kind of cultural norm. So the humor, I mean, the pop culture, that is the TV shows and the movies that that we were brought up on that were English, because we mostly brought up on the same stuff coming from Hollywood in America, right?
0: Right.
1: But the English stuff was, you know, it was English humor. So something very specific, something we're very proud of. Um... And at the time, kind of quite advanced in many ways, like, English advertisements in the 80s were very subtle and kind of just very subtle, humorous things in a way that ads in other countries were much more clunky and obvious. Or
0: something. Yeah. Uh, well, I'll just say at this point, when I was a teenager, um, a big, big, big thing for me was discovering Monty Python, which was uh, carried by a local PBS station near where I lived. And, you know, I'm in... Uh, Rural West Virginia, basically, and uh, watching these wacky British guys um, do all kinds of surreal things—it was—it was wonderful. I got to tell you,
1: it is. And the English have a tradition of the English eccentric, so that's a category in British society. So you have a kind of aristocratic family, and then one of the family is just really off their rocker, and <laughs> they kind of go off to India and Afghanistan and get into weaving you know, beaded gowns and you know, go local and then write this very kind of quirky memoir about it and live in some, their, their family's castle in the last 20 years of their life. And, <laughs> and they love lovers of books and they're very cultured. So you have a tradition of the English eccentric. And as I say, so that's what's lauded culturally. So when you meet a group of people, it's like you sit around just making kind of clever, you know, there's a lot of wittiness. So basically my growing up in a university is just sitting around trying to outwit other people <laughs> in the circle.
0: You know, coffee, you now you said your father that's, was from New York, right? Did I get that right? And so that's right. How, how did the family end up in Cambridge?
1: It's a very, uh, it's a very interesting story. So my father's family are from Venezuela. And yeah. so uh, the Caribbean, Venezuela. And his family, the, uh, the, the family were exiled twice from Venezuela by two different military dictators. Oh my gosh. Because so, they were very involved in politics. So one of my ancestors was the founder of one of the political parties. Acción Democrática, that essentially ruled Venezuela for about 50 years. Wow. Uh, until they became so decadent and depraved and just corrupt that Chavez came in uh, with new ideas initially. And then, of course, he became very corrupt and the, you know couldn't handle power and so on. But so they were very involved in politics. And in the 20s, a military dictator, who actually turned out to do quite a lot of good for Venezuela, I would argue. you know, Sometimes you need a strong arm for about a decade or two just to get things in order in some kind of objective way. But anyways, they were all kicked out, the whole family. And they went into a kind of diaspora, and many of them went to New York City. And then that same thing happened in the 40s. Uh, So my father was in the diaspora of the 40s. So he came when he was about six years old and he grew up in New York City. Wow. So that's, that's the story. How he got to England, again, very long story. But he was a filmmaker in the 60s. And he was really at the heart of, he was like a technocrat of the 60s hippie world. Mm-hmm. So he was a filmmaker. He did the light shows for Proko Harum. Oh, wow! He lived wow. in the flat above Timothy Leary.
0: Right.
1: Oh my gosh. <laughs> so my mother and my father lived in the flat. So they were in the group. Like Mr. Tambourine Man was a nuisance of a character that was down the street from my father's little studio. Wow. Wow. And you know, he's just shouting at him or something, you know. So he knew all those people and he was in it. And then he became very successful with his movies. And he ha- finally had a movie called Turn On, Tune In, Drop Out, which is that famous catchphrase of Timothy Leary, which gave him great success. But in the success, because he's a thinking person and a very philosophical person, who's really very sincere person, always looking for the truth and trying to find meaning. He uh, was not satisfied with this and had a kind of uh, psychological, just a kind of meltdown of meaning. Like he didn't, Mm. this was not it. So he went on a kind of spiritual search and he started reading books. And he started reading the books of many of the great world sacred traditions, Hinduism, Buddhism, uh, Sufism, and Islam, kind of mystical paths, sainthood, the question of sainthood. Um, and he'd become disillusioned as a child because he was brought up a Catholic. And when he was a young child, maybe still in Venezuela, actually, this may be when he was about six, the, the Catholic priest asked all the kids, what do you want to be when you grow up? And one kid said, I want to be a policeman. One said, I want to be a fireman. One said, I want to be this. My father said, I want to be a saint. <laughs> and the, priest, the priest got quite upset. He said, what? how dare you? Who do you think you are? That's for the people in the old days and medieval times. And then my father said, well, isn't that what the point of this is? Isn't the point, the full extension of religion is to be a saint, is to be enlightened, really, to, to take it to the very nth degree. So he became disillusioned. I remember he told me he visited a Catholic priest in New York as a young man. And the Catholic priest was trying to be cooler than he was. So he walked in. He was this cool guy smoking with a leather jacket and the whole scene. And then the priest was like boogieing to music and trying to be cool. And my father said, that's the last thing I was looking for. I don't want you to be cool. I want you to represent something true and high and something else than the prevailing culture, which is in a way, more and more the orthodoxy. So he didn't, you know, he wasn't finding answers. And that's what ultimately led him to go to Egypt, okay. to, to find saints, living saints and sages in Egypt.
0: Now, of course, the interesting part about this story to me was um, your father was a filmmaker, um, this sort of searching for faith, exploring faith, because that's very much what you do with 10,000 films. Do you want to talk about that?
1: Yes, so, and just a little kind of addition, and these are very long answers for a podcast, I'm sure. I'm sure I'm breaking some some of the protocols. (laughs) But he also knew Malcolm X. Oh, my. And he was a lover of jazz. He spent a lot of time with jazz men. And a lot of the kind of African-American jazz scene had a very Islamic, mystical dimension. So a lot of those guys were Muslims, actually. And... So he was quite influenced by that dimension as well. Um, uh, So this whole racial thing also is something that he grew up with in New York City and had a lot to say. So just just to kind of throw that in. Uh, But yeah, this search for meaning that my parents did and their interest in sainthood and kind of authentic people and living an authentic life meant that they went to Egypt which is a kind of pre-modern place. It's, It's the kind of ancient world. And I've lived in Germany and England, which is the kind of old world. And then now I've moved to America with my wife six years ago, and this is really the new world. So it's been interesting to live in those three different worlds. And it's, it is interesting now, I think we've discussed this before, I've lived in f- four different countries more than five years. So you live in all these different cultures and then you can start seeing what each of these countries thinks about itself, like the stories it tells about itself, the national uh, conceits, the national characteristics, the tendencies, the myth that holds everyone together. Right. The kind of grand story that brings everything. And so you see how each person has a story and how relative that story is, because you can jump to another country and they've got a whole other way of approaching things. And that's been quite interesting for me, just to see, just to experience that.
0: And, um, you mentioned you lived in Germany, so I'm going to get back to the question about the films, but you mentioned you lived in Germany and, um, you know, we we basically have a, Americans have a a image of Germans as very, um, well, you mentioned forceful, um, abrupt. I mean, what was their, what was their pop culture like?
1: Uh. Well, I have to be careful in this question because you know half my family now is German so I I need to tread carefully in answering this question. (laughs) Um, And then maybe I can quote something from Tolstoy about the different conceits of the Europeans which is quite interesting because Tolstoy in War and Peace kind of makes a very poetic short observation about each nation and their conceit in Europe, which is very uh, precise and still to this day quite accurate.
0: Mm.
1: Um, but no, the I mean, the pop culture in Germany, in a way, it's beneath their dignity. The pop culture in Germany is beneath the dignity of the Germans. So the Germans come from this axial civilization, the Holy Roman Empire of Europe, which was the center of Europe for a thousand years. And at its Peak took over a lot of Europe, right? Much of, you know, quite a lot of Eastern Europe was part of that Holy Roman Empire. So these people are uh, come from this very powerful civilization that produces a Mozart and a Bach and the Germanic people in general, including Austria and also and Goethe and you know just incredible breadth. And then a lot of the great scientists and. Thinkers that came to America from Germany, Germany also, right? So it's a major civilization. So, honestly, when I saw the pop culture, when I turned the TV on, the people on TV all look like it's very lightweight. They all look like game show hosts. It's like German politicians. I always tell my wife, the German politicians look really just so unimpressive. They look like game show hosts. There's nothing (laughs) substantial about them, and they're much below what I consider the height of the German people, because I have a great respect for the German people. And Germany, which is, you know, it's a it's a serious country. And there's something uh, that binds them all together in German-ness. It's almost like they've all drunk from the same well, honestly. Yeah. Uh, when you speak to a German, they all have the same thing, right? There's, and what is that? And And I was very impressed by it when I arrived in Germany. I lived in Stuttgart, uh, which is the the Schwabians, uh, which is a very wealthy area of Southern Germany where Mercedes-Benzes and Bosch and Siemens and Porsche and very, very wealthy industrial heartland of engineering. And I was really impressed by these people, their incredible objectivity, their precision, their work ethic, Uh, it it was an impressive thing, you know? So, for me, the pop culture is below their stature in a certain sense. Now, and in many ways, British, Anglo-American, British and American pop culture is way more interesting and advanced, I have to say. Hmm. And I think my wife will agree. So, I mean, I, you know, I'm interested in comedy. I love comedy. I follow lots of comedians. The comedy scene in Germany is really not uh, funny. Uh, let's put it out. And the guy comes on TV. He's wearing zany glasses, and he says like wacky things. Yeah. So it's not. It's not. You know. Somehow. Uh, yeah. And that I turn on the radio in Stuttgart, there's a lot of like Phil Collins, and you know the fi- it's a final countdown is playing <laughs> on a lot of German radio stations. So you know. Uh, I, you know, really, I mean. The, with the guy from Knight Rider, what's his name? Uh,
0: uh, Michael Hasselhoff.
1: Hasselhoff was very big in Germany in pop music,
0: mm-hmm. for example. Crazy. Um, and then you, another
1: uh, third of German radio is German folk songs, you know. And that's kind of interesting. And that's a dimension that's still there in Germany, which is you go to the towns and the villages and people still have these... Uh, Festivals and local festivals, and there's still a coherence to their culture and still a connection with their traditions, which in England maybe has 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 is is less there now. Uh, in Germany, there's still that. And there's also a civic pride and a togetherness. Mm-hmm. People are really connected in something, like they're all together in a project to do something. And so I was quite impressed by that.
0: Nice. So you mentioned. Uh, you find American pop culture more advanced and British pop culture more advanced than German pop culture. In in like, in what way? You You mentioned comedy, but are there other ways?
1: Yeah, I mean, the sorcery of popular culture and mass communications and Hollywood and that magical sorcery is in a way perfected in many senses in America and Hollywood. Um, I would say and there's an incredible amount of intelligence that actually goes into that stuff
0: So uh, since I the stuff doesn't always show it
1: <laughs> It doesn't show it but if, but any if you ask any filmmaker at any level who's serious about the craft of filmmaking you know and you know it takes 10, 15 years to really start to get a handle on what that craft is, they won't uh, brazenly critique Hollywood films technically. Technically, these big Hollywood films are technically brilliant. In other words, all, all those people in the credits behind producing this spectacle are at the top of their game. Mm. You know, the fact that you have to appeal to the lowest common denominator in mass communications, which is a reality. So, if you have a documentary on Bach, one percent of the population will watch it. If you have a if you have a documentary about naked. People running on spring break—you know—at least <laughs> half the population watch it because that's viscerally more interesting. So th- that's another thing: the quality and so on. But the, the the technocrats who make those movies are at the top of their game. Um, I was for example—I was, was living in Cambridge before I came here, and I was—I went to the Cambridge Film Festival, and randomly, one of the speakers was the writer of gladiator he wrote gladiator he wrote a couple of james bond films just a, an amazing uh, guy and i'm forgetting his name at this moment but i'll try and recall it and you know he's a top screenwriter from hollywood right and he's talking to these cambridge students and he's like um And he was a librarian and a playwright for many years before he got into Hollywood. So he was telling us how you have to respect the elders, the ancestors, you have to read everything. Read all the greats, read all the classics, read Shakespeare, read all, respect the craft, respect the ancestors. And then he says, he was describing what he did for his process, his creative process. And he said, and then every once in a while I go into the kind of cathedral of silence for six months and I write my scripts. So I'm sitting in the audience and I was really intrigued by this cathedral of silence. So I put up my hand and I said, do you mind explaining what you mean by this cathedral of silence? He goes, no, you know, it's just my process of how I actually write the script. So it's, it probably wouldn't interest you. And then I kind of put my hand up again sheepishly and the moderators were getting like, who is this guy pushing kind of nervous, awkwardly. And he said, all right, I'll explain. What I do when I write my scripts is I wake up at six in the morning and I get into a kind of Japanese hot tub with a yellow notepad. And I sit there for about 45 minutes and just write down thoughts. Then I have a very light breakfast. I do some yoga. Then I sit at the computer, typewriter, as it were, for an hour and a half and I write. Then I have a very light lunch. And he described a very disciplined, almost monastic Mm -hmm. regimen. And by seven o'clock in the evening, he's asleep. And he did this for six months to produce these scripts. And he says the script, writing Hollywood scripts is much more like poetry than prose because every couple of seconds, millions of dollars are being spent. So huge amounts of a lot, of, a lot of thought and intelligence goes into every 10 seconds of a movie. Why it's there, what are you trying to do with it? Is it moving the story forward? Then he said, now the other six months of my life, I'm in Hollywood parties schmoozing with all of the agents and the thing and making deals and trying to get money and do the whole thing. And he turned to the students, all of us young naive students, he said, if you're not willing to do both of these things fully with all your heart, you'll never be a Hollywood screenwriter. If you wanna write and you're very precious about your writing, blah, 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 write, but then just do that. You'll be a poet or some kind of artist. But if you wanna be a Hollywood screenwriter, you have to do both these things fully to succeed. That was advice. And I really appreciated that because I like to hear the advice of people who are actually at the top of their game, right. who are actually in it.
0: So did you, at what point did you decide to uh, make films?
1: I've been wanting to make films since a young age because my father was a filmmaker. So growing up, he would take me to watch movies and then we would discuss them for hours afterwards. So he took me to watch, uh, he was a great lover of Kurosawa, Mm -hmm. Akira Kurosawa, as I am. I also love Akira Kurosawa and many of his films. Uh, Ron is one of my favorite films.
0: Wonderful film.
1: Yeah, wonderful film, just on so many levels. Kagemusha is a great film. But there are many, there's also kind of more like, there's, um, yeah, there's just so many dimensions he goes into uh, Kurosawa. And he's considered in many ways a kind of Western filmmaker because he took uh, many great stories from the Western canon and put them into a samurai context or something. Uh, Ozu is considered more, is considered higher than Kurosawa and considered a pure Japanese filmmaker. And so Ozu's Tokyo Story, my father took me to, and that's considered the best film ever made, whatever that means, by a lot of rarefied uh, film critics, right? And it's a very interesting film in a way, and nothing happens in it at all. Almost nothing happens <laughs>
0: <in> Tokyo
1: Story. <laughs> uh, so I didn't get it initially, but I started to get it over the years. So I, my father, in any case, is a filmmaker, so I, I grew up in that milieu and was
0: interested. And did you have dreams of doing Hollywood or did you sort of know that your path was going to be more in the documentary vein?
1: Yeah, I'm more in the documentary vein because I'm more academic or my background is more academic and intellectual kind of. I've been involved in a lot of academic projects and I was a consultant, kind of cultural consultant for many years in different aspects of like Middle East history and politics and religion. Um, so, yeah, I'm too bookish in a way, uh, and that's that's a kind of uh, weakness or tendency of mine, because films are not very good data delivery devices. Uh, a Film is a visceral thing, it's an emotional thing, and it's about action and outward activity. It's not a great way of delivering enormous amounts of information. A book is probably a much better way of delivering lots of data, if you want a lot of data. Um, and films are something else, they're, they're visceral. So you have to tell a story. But I still have my interest in history and politics and, I, and religion, and I'm interested in how to do that, you know, visually, you know, visual storytelling.
0: Robert is obviously a fascinating guy, and time got away from me. We talked too long to contain it in just one show. Uh, part two, which will be coming next week, um, is great. He talks about um, his work with 10,000 films uh, and a lot of specific things about documentary uh, making in general that I think you'll enjoy. So um, tune in next week to hear the conclusion of this interview. Until then, I'm Steve Hall for Popaholics. Go out and enjoy pop culture.